0: So friends, what we're doing today is we are continuing with our summer sermon series that we are calling The King, The Cross, and The Crown. And what we're doing is that we are specifically making our way through the gospel of Mark. And we're well into the second half of Mark's gospel, which is really focusing on the the suffering of Jesus Christ and how Jesus' suffering, how his cross is meant to shape Our lives, And so today we're going to be looking at two passages. These two passages really arise out of Jesus' own humility uh, and his willingness to suffer for our sake. And so the two passages that we're looking at, the first passage is Mark 9, verses 33 to 37. The second passage is Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. And so let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. This is Mark chapter 9. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him In the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then jumping to Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, how, that the fact that you give us this word so that we would have life with you. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts by your spirit, that we would see you, what you have for us today. What, your word ha- what you have for us in your word, and we ask that you would shape us by it as well. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Several years ago in Indianapolis, there was a junior varsity softball game. And so the, these two teams played against one another. And, but for one school, it was their first game of their first season within the first year of the school's program. So it was the very first softball game ever in school's history. But for the other team, it, the, the other team was undefeated for, for two and a half years. And they were, at this particular game, they were well on their way. The other team, the, their, who this was their first game, They showed up with five softballs, two bats, no helmets, no cleats, nor sliding pads. And as the game was going on, the game was just truly confusing and hard to watch. You would see athletes hitting the ball and then saying, which way do I run? Is that first base or is that first base? They were just wondering which way to go. And even their coaches had to be shown where the first and third base coaching boxes were. So surprisingly, the undefeated team at the end, in the middle of the second inning, the score was nine to zero. I said surprisingly, but that's really unsurprising at this point. But the surprising move is when the coach came and offered to forfeit the game as the, he, he offered to forfeit the game the game he said instead of having a, a game on the record where where like we win and you lose, we'll forfeit, and we'll have a practice instead. And so the, the team accepted, and at the end of the day, this team that won by forfeiture, this team received a large donation of used bats and gloves, balls and sliders, money for cleats and more. And at the end, because of how this was publicized, the Major League Baseball team, the Cincinnati Reds, donated their used dirt to this school to help them construct a softball field at their school. This was surprising. This is actually an incredible story. We hear this, and it, but it's still surprising because we live in a world of competition. There are winners. There are losers. In fact, we live in a world where Peyton Manning can walk off the football field at a Super Bowl without shaking anyone's hand. We live in a world where Tiger Woods does not acknowledge the spectators' At the masters. See, this is the world that we live in. This is the world that we play in. This is the world that we work in. This is the world that we exist in order to get ahead. And all this competition arises from our self centered ego. And because the truth is that when you compete with one another, when you are trying to climb ladders to get ahead, the fact is you cannot love others. When you compete with one another, the only thing that you can do is use others to get ahead. And this is exactly what Jesus is addressing here in Mark's gospel. Jesus is addressing the ambition in our lives where t- in order to get ahead. And so this is urgent for us very personally. Because every single person here has a, a sense of ambition, has a sense, a sense of competition in life. So this is urgent for us personally. And, if we f- and what we find here is that if we want to thrive, if we want to flourish in life, then we must be a servant to all people. And this is urgent in, in a different way. This is urgent to us in our culture because one of the most powerful ways to show the truth of Christianity is to serve others. And so as we look at this text, the first point I want us to really consider today is Jesus' own example. Jesus' own example. And so this is really getting at the dynamics of the second passage that we just read. See, Jesus has two very close friends, James and John. They come to Jesus, and together, these two individuals with Peter have witnessed some incredible things that we have seen over the past few weeks. Peter, James, and John just a few weeks ago saw Jesus at the transfiguration. They witnessed Jesus being revealed in his glory as fully God. They witnessed Jesus raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead. They witnessed a resurrection. So it would go to, by all the standards of our logic in this world, it would be natural to conclude James and John, to come to Jesus and say, hey, in your new kingdom, when you are fl- reigning, can we sit at, at the best seats in the house? We have seen you raise a girl from the dead. We have seen you revealed in your glory. So they're trying to actually get ahead of their friend P- Peter. And so, But what's going on here is that these two men, James and John, misunderstood Jesus. They misunderstood what it meant for Jesus to be king. Because these men think that Jesus' kingdom is physical. They think that it is of this world. And so Jesus comes to them and asks them a question. Can you drink my cup and be baptized like I was? And at that point, they reply yes, because they're thinking, hey, can we share the same drink? Can we share the same beer? Can we try drink out the same soda cup? That's what they're thinking. They're thinking about being baptized with the same waters. that is how they're thinking. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is using these two established theological ideas of the cup and baptism within an Old Testament mindset. Both the cup and the water are two ideas that refer to God's judgment. Jesus refers to this cup again in Mark Chapter 14, verse 36, when he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to God, he says, let this cup pass from me. And he's referring to Isaiah 55, verse 12 at that point. And Isaiah writes, behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink. No more. So Jesus is pointing out that he is going to suffer and endure God's wrath and God's judgment. That is what Jesus must go through in order to be exalted as the king. If Jesus is going to be the king, he needs to suffer God's wrath upon the cross and he must be baptized by the waters of judgment. And that's what Jesus is getting at, that's what Jesus is, is saying to them. And Jesus goes on to tell them, like, how the the phrase is constructed is that he's trying to lead them to say no, but they say, yes, we can. And he goes on to say that, yes, the cup that I drink, you will drink. So he tells them that they, too, are going to suffer, but but the best seats in in Jesus' kingdom are not the seats that Jesus can give away. Those seats are for those for whom it has been appointed. That's how he goes on and explains. But the question that we need to ask at this point is, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus endure the wrath of God? Why would Jesus endure the judgment of God? And he tells us why. And this is a beautiful verse in verse 45. This is what we read. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we all know what a ransom is because a ransom is really a sum of money that you pay a kidnapper to get the hostages back. But within the Greek, it also means being liberated. It means being rescued and delivered from slavery. And so the idea that Jesus is saying here is that Jesus' death is payment where we are rescued from our slavery to sin. And the fact is that Jesus, by dying upon the cross, paid the price for your sins. We're told in, in 1 Corinthians that your life is not your own, for you were bought with a price. This wonderful reality is that Jesus, as he died for you on the cross, he frees you from the from being enslaved to sin. But he also frees you, he freed you from the penalty of sin. Of Sin. He freed you from pain. Uh, he, he freed you from. He rescued you from enduring and facing God's wrath and judgment. Because that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus's death, in other words, as we put this to all together, is not just something in the past. Jesus did not just die for you in the past. His death has meaning for you in your life today and tomorrow. Jesus died out of His love for you. He served you in His life. Jesus, by dying on the cross, serves you. And in his resurrection and his defeat over death, in his resurrection, he serves you still. And he's, even today, as he sits at the right hand of God, as he is the king, he still serves you still. To paraphrase a song by Brian Adams, everything he did, he did for you. And so, what we see, what Jesus is really showing us here, is that Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross is the basis and the example for his call upon our lives. Because Jesus served us, we are called and able to serve others. So before I move on to our next point, right, right now we need to remember that the source of, G- of, of our ability to serve others rests On the fact that Jesus has serves, Jesus served and serves you still. Everything he has done and more, He everything that He asks of you, He has already done. This brings us to our second point, which is Jesus' call for you. Once again, the disciples are here and they're showing just how. Um, slow they are to understand what Jesus is about. We read two passages, Mark 9, Mark 10. But in Mark 9, they're debating who is the greatest among them. And Jesus basically says that if you're going to be the greatest, if you're going to be the most important disciple, this is what Jesus says. If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, Receives not me, but him who sent me. And so this actually goes against everything that we are told today. Fundamentally, it shows how countercultural and how different the way of Jesus is. It is a great reversal of all that we know and expect from life. See, how we live our lives is like this. If you want to get ahead in a job, you make yourself available to your bosses so you check your email first thing in the morning you you, you stay late uh, later than other coworkers if you want to get ahead then you need to work harder you need to do a better job you need to have a bigger network than your coworkers your coworkers aren't your friends primarily they they are your competitors they are people that you work with yes but you are still competing with them in order to get ahead but the unspoken reality is that competing with others ruins your life and ruins your relationships. We see this in, in, in our text in Mark 10. As James and John are asking this question, hey, can we sit in the best seats in the house? Jesus, like, Jesus sh- shares this news with the other ten disciples, and the other ten disciples grow indignant with them, is what we are told See, competition damages our life. Competition and ambition jeopardizes our relationships. And it's all because of our self-centered, selfish ego. One writer puts it this way. When you compete with one another, you cannot love others. When you compete with one another, you can only use one another. And that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus whatsoever because what we see is that Jesus came not to be served but to serve us. Jesus came and he humiliated himself so that we would have life with with God. And Jesus cares how we treat one another, how we specifically treat the least of these. If you're going to follow Jesus, then you need to be a servant to others. Writer Jeff Vanderstelt puts it this way. He writes that Jesus wants us to live all of life fully for his glory in the world. Every part and every person. Jesus did not live, serve, suffer, and die just so that we could attend a Christian event. He lived and died so that we would become his people who are sent into every part of the world on his behalf. He wants all people everywhere to see and know about him. And he wants everyone to know that everything is to be done for his glory. We now see our time, our money, and our unique abilities as means to serve both the people who are the church and those in our cities who don't know the great news of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. All of life counts, and everyone matters. What Vanderstel is getting at here is that when Christians come together, when we faithfully follow the way of Jesus, then people are going to see Jesus through our service through our acts of compassion and love. And so specifically in Mark 9, Jesus highlights children for us. He, he brings a child and, he, and he, he uses a child as really as, as an object lesson. But he actually sh- point, not just uses a, a child as an object lesson. He restores dignity and personhood to this child. He says that uh, whoever does, shows kindness to a child receives me see children in Jesus' day they were looked down upon because children they what children do they're just they're extra mouths to feed that they they you clean up after them all the time they they are unable to work a job and to provide and for the rest of the family that children are unable to do that so jesus actually shows great dignity to children when he says that even later on he says that the the children are part of his family now as well. So in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. That we are not competitors with one another, but we're servants to one another. Where in Jesus' kingdom, the fatherless are fathered because we're serving one another. The forgotten are remembered because we are serving one another. The marginalized have have belonging, the the orphaned have a family. And this is all made possible because we are serving one another. We're giving our time and our talents and our treasure to one another to help one another grow in their lives. A few years ago in my church in Pittsburgh, um, some friends shared with their community group that finances were tight. And that uh, they were unable to buy the um, their a, a prescription that was needed for um, um the wife's mental health. And so the community group wonderfully rallied together. They rallied together and they paid for the needed medication for the next few months. And that's just a picture of how we can actually embody this call to serve one another, how we can give our time and our treasure and our talents to serve one another. This is a call that we have as Jesus' followers to one another within the church, but also to our neighbors as well. But this brings us, uh, moving into our third point, uh, this brings us to another dynamic that's going on here. And this is actually leadership within the church. See, Jesus says in in Mark 10, this is what Jesus says in verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So at this time, Jesus is very specifically thinking leaders. He's thinking about those who are rulers, those who have authority. He goes on to say how Gentile rulers lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. See, Jesus is coming to this point where he says that in my family, in my church, the way that leaders live, the way that people hold and conduct authority is going to be different than the leadership gurus that you read about in the world. That leadership in the church needs to be different than what we read on on the leadership self-help books in Barnes Noble and elsewhere. And Jesus points out that, his lead, that leadership, in other words, is meant to be different. Worldly leadership, as he describes it, is full of arrogance and pride, something that you lord over others where you say, hey, I'm the boss. You work for me. Go do this. And if you've read any recent leadership books, you know that some writers emphasize servant leadership. But And this sounds exactly like what Jesus is talking about. But it's different because this. Because if you look at the objectives within like those books, the reason behind the servant posture within leadership is to beat the competition and get ahead. That is not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is telling his disciples that his kingdom, that his church is meant to be different. And And Peter, who is like... Uh, who's telling all of this to Mark, if you recall, Peter connects this specifically to leaders in the church in 1 Peter 5. And you'll, you'll hear similarities between the language that Peter is using here with Mark. So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. What he's pointing out here, what Peter's draw, pointing us to, what Jesus is, wants us to see, is that leaders in the church are meant to be gentle examples of Jesus to the church. And when the church fails to reflect Jesus for who he truly is, it hurts. This is true for the church at large, but this is also very true for the leaders within the church as well. One member from a previous church was dating uh, a seminary student, a classmate of mine, and she was a very uh, godly woman. She was hungry to learn about Jesus. She was hungry to learn about his word. And they're driving to church one day with uh, other classmates. uh, And they were getting into a conversation about a topic that was being discussed in, in a class earlier that week. And she hears this theological word, and she's like, she asks a great question. Uh, The best question in the world. And she's like, what's that mean? And at that point, people turned to her and laughed. And they mocked her because she did not know what the Decalogue meant. The Decalogue is just a fancy word to say the Ten Commandments. And that really hurt her where she was mocked for not knowing some some Latin-like word. Another example is a church planning pastor. He's a friend of mine, and he served for years in the army and he was a chaplain. And he has PTSD. Not because of his military service, but because he was used and he suffered spiritual abuse from a senior pastor who was who who was really as he would describe it a covert narcissist. The point that I'm making is that leaders in the church can can hurt you when and this is, I need to be much more first person. But leader, we leaders in the church can hurt you when we are not being an example of Jesus Christ. We can hurt you. And so perhaps you have a similar story. And in three conversations with you, I know that many of you have similar stories of where you've been hurt by pastors or, or leaders in a, chur- in a church. And the fact is that you were not shown Jesus you, were, you witnessed a person using their ego to get ahead. You were not shown Jesus by those who are called to be examples of Jesus, and I'm truly sorry for that. And it's my hope and my prayer that you will see Jesus in my leadership here at Ironworks, but you'll also see Jesus through one another, through our love and service as well. Because the point is that our lives are meant to be living pictures who embody who Jesus is. That we, in fact, lead people to Christ by living simple lives of love. And this is why it is essential that church leaders are meant to be an example of who Jesus is. Because we are meant to serve others so that you too would be personally encouraged and shown how to be a servant as well. Perhaps you know the writer, Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen was a professor of Notre Dame, Yale. In Harvard. And while he was at the height of his career, where when he was at the top of his academic life, he stepped down in a trajectory of downward mobility. He left the academy and instead he went to serve and spend the rest of his life pastoring a small community of mental of people with mental disabilities. And he writes this about this posture and this trajectory of downward mobility, of servanthood. He writes that Scripture reveals that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The divine way is indeed the downward way. Jesus moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to anonymity. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth resisted upward mobility. See, greatness is not, being, is not found in being well-liked or in our reputation or in competing with others. Greatness is found as we make much about Jesus in our own lives and we pour out our lives in service to others as we want to live lives centered around him. But here's the last question that we need to ask ourselves. What would compel someone like Henry Nowen from leaving their successful career where he is serving students, where he, he went to serve the least of these? How did Nowen find the strength to, to renounce the acclaim and the applause of others and instead pour out his, lives, out, out, pour out his life in, in love for others? The people that he served were unable to serve him back. How was he able to do that? The only source... The only way Christians can do this, the only way that we can follow the way of Jesus, the only way for us that we could become more self-forgetful, where we are able to turn our eyes away from ourselves and onto God and onto each other and others, is fueled and sustained by the fact that Jesus came to serve us, where Jesus came to serve you. The point of this passage is not so so much a call for us to be servants. The point of this passage is for us to see how much Jesus actually served us. As we read, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, everything that he did, he did for you that you would have life with him. Let's pray.